Have you ever heard of Kelly Corrigan? She has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah magazine, no big deal, calls Kelly the voice of a generation. Well, she also has a podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders, and it is awesome. Thousands of five-star reviewers say she is thought-provoking, funny, and authentic. And it has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore to Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithgott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Subscribe to Kelly Corrigan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hey, everyone. First off, we want to thank you for listening to No One Is Coming to Save Us. And now we want to hear from you, what you've learned, what's sticking with you, what questions you still have, and what you're motivated to do as a result of listening. Right now, you can take our short survey to help us better understand the impact of our work. And even better, once you've completed the survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Visa gift card. The survey is short and sweet, I promise, and it will really help us keep bringing you content you love. Take the survey at bit.ly slash no one survey. That's bit.ly slash no one survey. Thanks again. Lemonada. Hi, hi, hi. Hi, friends. How is everybody? Is everybody okay? Good. I hope everyone's okay. I am okay. And you know what? I will take okay. I will take okay these days. I am good with being okay. We are staring down Halloween in this house. We got a cheetah. I don't know what my boys will do. On the day this episode airs, we will have four days until Monday, which is October 31st. But to take a page from what they do not tell you about parenting, where I live, we will do a whole other thing on Saturday. Yes, a little sneaky Saturday Halloween every year. So really, we have two days. (laughs) Two days. I better buy that candy. This is No One Is Coming to Save Us, a Lemonada Media original created with and presented by Neighborhood Villages. I am your host, Gloria Riviera. Our guest today is Julie Menon. She is a New York City Council member representing District 5, which includes neighborhoods like the Upper East Side, East Harlem, and Roosevelt Island. She is an attorney with over two decades working in the public and private sector. And to top it all off, she has been spearheading the effort to establish universal childcare in New York City. And, drumroll please, earlier this month, her bill passed. It passed, making New York the first U.S. city to pass universal childcare. This is a major win. She's going to tell us all about it. She is a total boss. She's also a mother of four. She has a little girl just like me, and we talked about our little girls and changing things for them. Julie is just this fierce mama, lawyer, councilwoman in the thick of the fight. And if everything goes according to plan, and wait until you hear about her plan because it is smart, then New York City could become the first city in this country to have what we know we all need, affordable, accessible, quality childcare. It is possible. But don't listen to me. 
listen to Julie. Here she is. Julie, I'm so glad that you're with us. And one of the first things that I want to hear more about is, you know, you have this illustrious career. You've had this big win recently in early education. But I want to start with what it is like for you as a mother in the city and what your experience was, you know, trying to pursue a prestigious job, career, and having little ones. What was finding care like for you in New York? Well, this is a a problem that every working parent faces is childcare. And it has only become worse during the COVID pandemic. I'm a mother of four. I started my career as a lawyer um, and then owned a small business and then got very involved in public sector work as commissioner of several city agencies. And it's always juggling childcare. It's it's a demand and a challenge that um, I think every single parent faces. For me personally, when my boys were young, um, my mother was alive and she helped me. I, it would have been very difficult for me to have had the career I would have had without my mom's help because she would literally come over and help me all the time. Um, and my mother sadly is no longer uh, here. So I know this challenge firsthand. And when I decided to run for city council, I campaigned on the issue of universal childcare because it's a, really a moral imperative that city government help families in need who cannot afford childcare. And part of it is an affordability issue, but part of it is also an accessibility issue. We have 17 childcare deserts around the city. So even finding childcare near your home is a challenge as well. I know, and I want to look at everything that you introduced specifically because I know that there is a directory that will make things hopefully much easier for families when they search for childcare. So I also was in the middle of pursuing a next chapter in my own career, and my mother came to help me with my three-year-old and my one-year-old, and I simply don't know what I would have done. What did people on the campaign trail say to you when you campaigned on this issue? What were the stories that you heard? I know personally you thought, wait a minute, this is a huge problem. We need to fix this. But how did you find it resonating with people whose vote you were hoping to get? So I heard about it on the campaign trail constantly because for many people, childcare is one of the single greatest expenses that they face. On average, childcare costs between $18,000 and $21,000 a year. So it is an enormous challenge for the majority of New Yorkers. So I was constantly talking to parents and caregivers who were saying, yeah, we can't afford this. This is, we, we can't afford it. And I particularly for working mothers, I would hear from them saying that they felt like they had to leave their job because they couldn't find affordable, accessible childcare. And that's really borne out by the statistics. Just last year, over 375,000 parents have either left the workforce or downsized their career because they can't afford childcare. Uh, that, that's embarrassing and that's unconscionable. Like, why are we as a city allowing this to happen? It's not only the wrong thing for the city to allow, but it also has an economic 
uh, effect as well, because those 375,000 parents, it's estimated, are costing the city over $2 billion a year in lost economic revenue. So one of the reasons um, why I launched this package was, first of all, to make it easier for families who cannot afford childcare to be able to do so. Secondly, to try to create the building of more childcare facilities because we've got these childcare deserts all over the city. But also there there's an economic reason as well. Women should not be forced to have to choose between a job and childcare. That's outrageous. And so we as a city are finally stepping up and New York City, because of this package, is actually the first city in the country to implement universal childcare. So you have said in the past that universal childcare means that everyone who needs a seat will get a seat. Tell me more about that. What is and and where are we now that this these bills have passed? What what does it look like now? I know that there's, you know, sort of the grant pilot program will be implemented from now until July. Is it? Talk me through, and then we'll go back to the to the fight to pass this. But talk me through what it looks like now that this has passed almost unanimously. And I want to talk about the almost there too. But what does the landscape look like now? Sure. Well, the landscape, first of all, it looks like universal childcare. I mean, universal childcare was definitely the goal behind this package. And in fact, one of my bills, which uh, creates a permanent childcare advisory board mandates that the city must within five years get to a universal childcare program. However, uh, the first priority has to be those that really need it. And so uh, my advisory board bill basically stipulates that first, the board is going to look at families who um, are at 400% or less of the federal poverty guidelines. So just to give it a, a specific example, the 400% of the federal poverty guideline is $111,000 for a family of four. So basically for families of four that are at 111000 or less, we're going to start with them. That is the first focus. But then beyond that, we want to get to universality, which basically means for every family that needs childcare, the city should be providing that. And, and I've had experience in terms of creating universal programs before. When I was commissioner of the Department of Consumer Affairs, I launched a program to provide a college savings account to every public school kindergartner. We started with a pilot program in Queens where we gave out college savings accounts to 13,000 kindergartners. We proved the concept and now that program is universal. So every single kindergartner in the city of New York is now part of that program. It's called NY. I see kids rise. So universality on childcare, the goal is first, we're focusing on the families at 111,000 or less, and then we broaden it out. Now, the bills do not stipulate the ages. They don't say what ages we have to provide universal childcare. However, in my opinion, the greatest need is first on zero to three. Because the city has 3K, although that has um, been scaled back recently, but we do have universal pre-K, there is really very little from zero to three. So I really wanted the focus first to start on zero to three to try to help those parents. And something that we've seen happen here in D.C. is that because D.C. also has passed universal pre-K, there's a more acute need at the younger ages 
And they actually have a problem if they expand it beyond that because older siblings will go off into pre-K and it just changes the dynamic for a family. Where are they going every day? Where are they dropping their kids off every day? So I agree. I think it's heartening to hear that that is the focus age. And I also think it's heartening to hear that you've expanded the eligibility requirements to 400% of the poverty income level. That's that's a big expansion. And $111,000 a year, we always hear these numbers that are so low. It's heartening that that's the level that's now being targeted to help, right? It's a higher level than it has been before. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And that was really the goal because in talking to parents, I would hear this all the time where you have two working parents who are working jobs and one of them has to leave the workforce because they can't afford childcare. So the goal was to broaden eligibility to 400% or below and then broaden it out after that. But to do a truly universal childcare program you know, is going to take some time. So we gave up to five years, uh, but five years is the deadline. Uh, but obviously we're going to push to get this done faster. But the city council has oversight, so we will obviously be performing our oversight function. And I plan on holding the administration's feet to the fire on this. Have you ever wondered if knowing more is always good, or if we can really trust our gut, or how change actually happens? For answers, I turn to Kelly Corrigan Wonders, a weekly podcast I just love. If you haven't heard of her, Kelly has written four New York Times bestsellers and has a great show on PBS. Oh, and the Oprah Magazine calls Kelly the voice of a generation. The Huffington Post calls her the poet laureate of the ordinary. Her podcast, Kelly Corgan Wonders, has thousands of five-star reviews that emphasize thought-provoking, funny, authentic. It also has over 14 million downloads. She gets real with everyone, from Lisa Damore and Pete Buttigieg to Julie Lithcott-Hames and Mary Louise Kelly. Together they help us focus on the long game of parenting, create support systems, and keep our lives in good working order. Subscribe to Kelly Corgan Wonders wherever you're listening now. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out March 27th from Lemonada Media. How much do you think that you've inherited from de Blasio now that's that's created the problems that you had to tackle, right? Like, there are so many headlines. Great, universal pre-K, fantastic. And yet I read a lot about how difficult early education and what it looks like has been in New York City. I mean, I, I don't want to ask you where you place blame. Let me ask you this. What were the major hurdles that you faced and 
who was responsible for those. Well, it's really interesting when when you look at this, because just yesterday we had an education hearing about payment to child care providers. And only 61% of child care providers in the city have been currently paid by the Department of Education last year. How do we expect child care providers to continue their work if they're not getting paid on time? And we're really seeing the consequences of that. Over 1,400 child care providers have closed in recent years. And I hear constantly from them they're closing because of lack of timely payment. They're also closing, by the way, and this, this is another big issue, is in order to open up a child care facility, obviously you need to do criminal background checks for anyone that is going to be working with children. And I'm not in any way suggesting that we not do that. That is obviously, as a mother, I you know completely um, concur with that. However, it's taking the Department of Education seven to 12 months to do a routine criminal background check. So that is basically clogging up the system of approvals for these new child care facilities to open. So there are just myriad problems administratively with operating these businesses. And I'm trying to cut through the bureaucracy and red tape and making it easier to open up the child care facilities. Two of my bills get to the issue of supply. One bill provides grants directly to struggling providers, and a second bill uh, provides a tax abatement that is offered by the state up to $225,000 to property owners to open up new child care facilities. Julie, there's a lot to unpack there. But just for our listeners, I do want to go back to the issue of non-payment because I'm guessing that New York is not the only state that deals with issues of non-payment. But what we're talking about there, and you fill this out if there are gaps, is that there are providers around the country, particularly in New York State, that depend on their State Department of Education to give them money to support their businesses because they are enrolling children on subsidies, correct? So what what is the payment that they're relying on the government to get? Because I've read about providers being unable to pay their teachers, being late with teacher salaries. I'm imagining that that money is allocated to things like rent, that it just, they're not getting the operating cost that they have been told they would receive from the government. And why is that? Well, you ask a lot of very important questions. So first of all, we are talking about the city Department of Education here because, again, the city council only has jurisdiction over city agencies. So basically, the city Department of Education has been delaying payments to city-contracted early childhood programs. They are owed millions of dollars in in reimbursement. And so that's been an enormous issue. Um, And so that we had a hearing about that basically to make sure that we were getting to that issue. Um, We did, in my opinion, did not get the answers that we really needed to from the Department of Education. And it's it's very frustrating because in order to get to universal child care, this is an issue of supply. This is an issue of, well, why have 1,400 child care providers closed in recent years? The demand is actually higher than ever. In New York City, on average, most years, there are over 100,000 births a year. So the demand is higher than ever, but the supply is shrinking. So we're hemorrhaging these child care providers and losing more and more of them. So I'm trying to stop the hemorrhaging. And you also mentioned earlier that there's going to be some kind of tax benefit 
for certain providers or certain property owners that avail themselves to early education centers. Can you talk us what that looks like? And the reason that I'm so interested in that is because I always go back, right? It's always about the money. Where is the money coming from? How can we make this economically advantageous for all sides, right? So this struck me as being very smart. Walk us through why you decided to propose that particular piece of legislation. Sure. Well, the New York state budget passed earlier this year, and it allows New York City to create a tax abatement to help increase child care facilities in the city. So starting in 2023, New York City is going to be offering a five-year tax abatement for property owners that create or expand child care centers. And specifically, it's up to $225,000 that's available through the abatement with costs incurred, for example, in construction or conversion or alteration or improvement to child care centers. So this tax abatement lowers the property tax bill by applying the credits against the total amount owed. So what my bill does is basically mandates that the city do this since the state has already allocated this, this funding. So we want to make sure now that it's happening. Right. And do you think that that is, I mean, to what extent, how attractive is that to a property owner to incentivize him, her, they, them, to open a child care center, early child care center? Well, look, for many property owners that have vacant space, the space has been vacant for some time. So a $225,000 abatement is an incredibly significant number. So the hope is that it really will spur property owners to make sure that they are creating these child care facilities, you know, we'll know soon. I mean, obviously we're going to monitor it, but it should make a difference and it should really move the needle. There are some other things in the legislation that you proposed that struck me as very, um, I, I don't know if this is the right word, but it's sort of administrative, right? Like taking a few steps back to say, there's a lot of mess we need to clean up. But talk me through each one. Let's start with 45A. And so this is very simple. This is a directory of child care programs in the city. And you mentioned earlier, child care deserts. And you're right. We think about them. Uh, you know, I'm from Washington State. I spend time in Idaho. I would suspect Idaho would have a lot of child care deserts. I'm sure it does. But New York City? That struck me as unusual. Well, it's really interesting. So basically, the idea behind this child care directory is if you want to try to find child care in your neighborhood, it's actually very difficult to find any kind of comprehensive guide to do so because there isn't. The city doesn't really have a comprehensive guide that lists every single facility, lists the languages spoken, the hours of operation. Is it operated out of someone's home? Is it a freestanding facility? So that's the idea behind the electronic child care directory. And that directory will be an online portal. It'll be available in 11 different languages. So we thought that that was a, you know, incredibly important to have. And it just doesn't exist right now. When you were a, a new mom and your mom, your own mom was headed in to help you, there was, you know, my, my mother says, no, in my time, I couldn't Google childcare. But still today, no one can Google that and, and get an answer that suffices. Well, that's exactly right. And it also lists the status of a permit or a license required to operate the program. So if you're interested in doing, you know, research about that, it basically gives you soup to nuts, all the salient information you would want to know about where your child is going to be in this child care facility. So that's the idea behind the electronic child care directory. Before we get to the next pieces of um, information that were in each bill, I do 
think it's a good time to say, okay, so this didn't pass unanimously. I, I read that it was sort of almost unanimous, but not totally. What were the objections? So every single bill passed unanimously, but one, the creation of the electronic child care directory had one person vote against it, just one. And the concern there, I had a colleague who, for privacy reasons, felt that child care providers should not have to be listed. But in fact, they already are listed because they're routine audits, so they're done um, by city agencies. The state also um, has a listing of some child care providers. So I did not agree with his um concern. And so he was the only one to raise a concern about a child care directory. But other than that, the bills passed. All the other ones were unanimous. Well, that's very good news. And I actually think the reporting should reflect that because when I read that it was not unanimous, that to me, you know, as as a podcaster on early education, you know, I want to dig into that, but your answer really (laughs) explains it. It's, I don't think almost unanimous is quite right. So talk to me about 487A, which is going to require the administration to create an online portal. Again, we're online that provides information on child care subsidies. Julie, I cannot tell you, uh, subsidies, that's what keeps me up at night. I just, the mess of subsidies. So why did you think this was an important issue to tackle? Because I think it's a maze. And I think that a lot of times families do not realize that they may qualify for a subsidy. There's city subsidies, state subsidies, federal subsidies. And so the idea behind the online portal is that in one portal, one website that you go to, you will find out which subsidies you can qualify for. What are the eligibility criteria for every single subsidy? There'll be instructions on how to apply for each of the subsidies. And the portal will also have all the forms that are needed to apply for each. Um, and, and again, we're trying to break through bureaucracy. We're trying to make it easier for parents and families to be able to have this information and then to qualify for the subsidies. And what do you envision happening once a family qualifies, and once the child is in a facility that's taking good care of the child, and this might be, you know, five years, 10 years down the line, but what kind of support is there then for the parents? I I know the bills don't offer supports for the parents, but if we're talking about getting uh, caregivers, parents out back into the workforce, is there any other kind of structure to support that? It's an excellent question because one of the goals behind the package is to deal with the issue that you just mentioned, which is parents being pushed out of the workforce because they cannot afford childcare. The hope is obviously if we get childcare covered for that family, which is what this legislation does, then that parent can decide to go back to work. That, I mean, that that's obviously the goal behind this, um, because we know, for example, that child care is disproportionately affecting women, affecting mothers who are being pushed out of the workforce. And a woman who makes, on average, $57,000 a year loses 480000 in their lifetime when they have to leave the workforce because of child care. So those earnings, I mean, we've got to get those back. Um, and so that that's really the, the whole gist behind one of the reasons why we felt this was so important. Hey, listeners, are you looking to update your wardrobe with items that actually make life suck less? We're here to help. 
We've got brand new Lemonada merchandise from Add to Cart, In the Bubble, V Interesting, Raised by Ricky, and more at the Lemonada Media online store. From stylish sweatshirts to eco-friendly water bottles, we've worked hard to curate a comprehensive line of actually cool merchandise that will fit seamlessly into your everyday life. Show off your favorite Lemonada podcast or your favorite lemon logo in style with t-shirts, tumblers, hats, mugs, and more. Head to our merch store at lemonadamedia.com slash shop to pick up your Lemonada merch today. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And we would like to invite you on a hilarious and heartfelt journey each week on The Deep Dive. From navigating the chaos of motherhood and family to exploring the depths of grief and loss, we are just two best friends who process life together and with you guys. Discover our secrets to finding joy amidst the madness and get ready for unfiltered conversations about life, love, and everything in between. And nails. We talk a lot about nails. Now, community is everything to us at The Deep Dive. We believe in the power of connection and the strength that comes from supporting one another, and we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. So I'm just curious, what was your thought process when you, and maybe this happened several years ago, but just take us through it. When you connected the dots, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically in season one, we looked at Canada and there is, um, I think it was Quebec, where the data was very clear back in the late 90s, more women in the workforce, increased tax dollars. You know, that was just one data point that was a benefit for passing highly affordable universal early education there. For you, wearing your lawyer cap, wearing your politician's cap, wearing you know all the caps that you wear, how did you connect the dots and how did you identify that making that economic argument was going to be key in passing all of this? Oh, the economic argument is key because, look, you can have the greatest programs in the world, but if we can't afford to pay for them, we're not moving the needle or changing anything. So I knew we had to pull the data on the economic argument. That was one of the first pieces of data that I pulled. And that economic argument is incredibly compelling. You know, to, to think that the city of New York loses in revenue, and this, this specific data point is $2.2 billion, and it's a study by the city's Economic Development Corporation, because parents are being forced out of the workforce or forced to downshift their career, that's incredibly compelling. I mean, other compelling data points are 60% of children in the city are living in areas considered to be childcare deserts. And a desert is basically defined as where available seats are not sufficient to meet the the need, the demand. So we know this. I mean, we know this is happening. And we know that parents are paying between eighteen and $21,000 a year in child care. I mean, that is just exorbitant for the vast majority of New Yorkers to be able to afford that. So those were the data points that we really looked at. And I also want to mention one of my colleagues um, did a bill uh, to create a Marshall Plan for Moms. It's basically a task force that will look at the idea of 
you know, challenges to working moms. I mean, we know that women in particular face a lot of these these burdens. And so the idea with universal childcare is obviously the hope is that the women will then be able to re-enter the workforce. Another part of the uh, bill is this grant pilot program for childcare programs. And what I'm curious uh, about when I look at this is the eligibility, right? That the child care program needs to be at significant risk of closure, but also meet application and other requirements established by the administrating agency. So that's when, that's as far as my uh, political acumen goes when I try to read through things. But just talk me through that. What are the requirements? So, so basically, the genesis behind this is I looked at the data of the number of facilities that had closed in recent years. I mentioned it earlier. It's 1,400 facilities. We've gone from 11,000 child care facilities, uh, over 11,000 in New York, to the mid-9,000s. That's not acceptable. Like, we, we just cannot have that. We have to stop this hemorrhaging. So the grant program, the idea behind it, it's a three-year pilot program that will award grants to struggling providers. I mean, the definition in the bill is at significant risk of closure or displacement. Uh, So basically, the agency administering this will have to make that determination. Our role in the council is to have oversight to make sure they're really doing a robust grant program that is meaningful, that they really did assess if the business is at significant risk of closure or displacement. Now, interestingly, and you might ask this, well, why doesn't the bill specify the size of the grant? It's left silent really on purpose. Originally, we did have language in there that would have specified the grant, but the more we talk to the administration, we actually want a broader relief for these businesses. And so it does not specify what the number is. And do you have a timeline? Because I imagine people saying, I need that money yesterday. Yeah. Well, it's a three-year pilot program, which is, you know, uh, so again, these grants need to go out the door quickly. One of the things we'll look at in our oversight is how quickly the grants were disseminated. I mean, you can't wait two years to give a grant. So this this law, this one, this particular law, the Child Care Grant Pilot Program, takes effect as soon as it's signed by the mayor, which, you know, we hope will be in a couple of weeks. Um, so then it's off to the races on that. After this passed, uh, when you got a chance to speak, not only with your team that had been fighting so hard to pass this and the other uh, women, because we haven't even talked about how this was really a women-led initiative, um, did you talk to anybody who was a daycare, early education provider, like for whom this was life-changing, that this had passed, that this would have maybe not an immediate impact, but it certainly had the immediate impact of bestowing hope, right? That they were no longer alone. Was there any sort of personal story that you tuck away and keep with you and use as you know, fuel for the fire when you need it? Yeah, no, it's a great question because it's not only about parents and caregivers, it's also about the providers. And we had, when I had the rally, when I introduced the bill, we had many providers who were there who told me such compelling stories about how literally they were on the brink of closure. They didn't know if they could pay their rent. They weren't sure that they could make it. They were in a month-to-month situation. And when you think about it and you're dealing with our most precious resource, our children, and yet these providers are on a month-to-month, the lack of stability that provides not only for that child care provider and the workers, but for the children. These children form bonds directly. 
you know, with these providers. And so it was sort of, it was so heartbreaking to hear these stories. And when we passed the bill, we had a provider from Brooklyn who came and spoke eloquently about how she was so moved about this and she was just thrilled that this is happening because she felt like finally someone had her back. Finally, there is hope that, you know, when when she faces instability around the payment or other challenges that she faces that the city is going to step up and give a grant. So it was really moving to hear these stories. And how do you feel about the work ahead? I mean, you've you've passed this. This is huge. Do you feel like this could be replicated in other states across the country? Do you have any conversations on the national level with uh, people in other states, elected officials in other states who are facing, I mean, because we deal with this everywhere, right? How in, how inspiring has this been? This 100% can be replicated in other jurisdictions. We in New York City are obviously the largest jurisdiction in terms of the child care, but that doesn't mean that this cannot be replicated. And, and I do hope that in the coming years, we're going to be able to provide the data to really show what a meaningful difference this has made in people's lives. And we'll be looking at a number of different data points. One, and this obviously will take some time to see this trend, but women re-entering the workforce, uh, where we saw like such hemorrhaging in terms of the workforce drain that was happening, where women were being forced to have to make that that terrible choice between childcare and their job. So that will definitely be a data point that we'll look at in terms of success. To the construction of more childcare facilities, we need to build more of them. And so I do hope particularly that the tax abatement one that we spoke about, as well as a grant program, will spur the construction of additional facilities. And then, of course, for the parents and caregivers, having universal childcare, having that burden lifted from them. And so we're going to be clearly holding the administration's feet to the fire in terms of making sure they're delivering on all of these different bills. But it's been a very collaborative conversation um, that I've had with the administration. So, you know, I, I feel that we're in a very good place in terms of delivering on these bills. And what if the administration, as it will, changes uh, a different different party comes in? How do you foresee being able to work across the aisle? I mean, look, I've, I've served as commissioner in two different mayoral administrations. I think I'm someone who has worked across the board, you know, with many different stakeholders, many different elected officials. And so whatever happens here in terms of the long term, this these bills will be the law for many, many mayoral administrations. This is for the long haul. This is not just for the short term. The idea is that 10, 20 years from now, people will be able to look back and say, okay, this was a structure that created universal childcare for the city of New York. So irrespective of which administration is in power, this is the law of the land. And this basically is, you know, creates a structure to get us there. So I'm very proud of this package and I can't wait to see it be implemented. Well, I'm very grateful that you took the time to speak to us today. Uh, as listeners, as you can tell from her tone, this is a woman who means business, and she's getting it done in New York City. My last question for you, you know, you go home to your four kids. I, I don't know how old they are. Are they four boys, or do you have a girl as well? Three older boys. Uh, one's already in college. <laughs> They're older. And then I have a four-year-old daughter. You do. You have a baby girl. I have a baby girl. Baby girls are good. The boys are the boys are great, but baby girls are good. I mean, so you have a four-year-old daughter. 
my question was, did you share this with your family or with your partner or, you know, your mo- mom is no longer with you, sadly, but did you think of her when you were able to get this across the finish line? I mean, how did, how did you bring this home with you at the end of the day? Well, I definitely talked to my kids about it. They were very, very proud, my boys. And my daughter is only four. And so I think for her, that, that, that I didn't really have that conversation with her. But my boys, I definitely did, as well as my husband. But I absolutely thought of my mother. I mean, I thought about all those times when I was working and when my mom was there, when I would come home. And she, I, I literally could not have done half of the things I've been able to do professionally without my mother. Because particularly when my boys were young, I had three in diapers at the same time time. And to describe it as, as organized chaos might be the only <laughs> way I think about where like one is running to the right and one is running to the left and one is running straight. And my mother, with her unbelievably patient and wonderful demeanor, um, was always there for me. And she helped me so much in, in a way that that you know, I just feel so blessed to have had her, particularly at that point in my life when my kids were very young and I really needed that extra support. So I absolutely thought she would have been so proud to have seen that the city council had passed this package and that New York City was going to be a leader in terms of providing universal child care. Well, I think your mom absolutely would be very proud. I'm so glad she was able to be there for you then. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, she was in your heart when you when you got this over the finish line. Thank you so much for talking to us. We appreciate it so much. And keep going. That's what I always say at the end of these interviews. Keep going. We need you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the conversation and focus on child care. It's such an important issue. Yep. That's what we do here. So you'll, you might have to come back. <laughs> I'd love to. Anytime. Can I tell you she told me she had a hard out at 10 minutes to the hour and we nailed it. Yes, we did. We got all we needed from her and I hope you did too. I love the way she kept saying, yeah, that's not going to work. That is unacceptable. Like, do not waste my time. Let's get to work. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for your work. Keep going. We are with you. Okay, so before we go on, I want to mention something very important. While we are days away from Halloween, we are also days away from the midterm elections. Last August, we spoke to an organizer who helped rally voters to turn down a ballot measure in Kansas that would have been devastating for abortion rights. There will be similar votes again in various ways, shapes, and forms across the country on November 8th. Five more states have abortion ballot measures in November. California, Vermont, Michigan, Kentucky, and Montana. You can easily learn more about exactly what is being proposed in each state. Google trusted sources. Broadly speaking, however, we are talking about amendments to each state's constitution that will directly affect access to abortion. Michigan is interesting because it is a battleground state that has had an abortion ban on the books since 1931. Yes, 1931. That law is currently blocked by the courts, but abortion rights advocates in Michigan see their proposed amendment as the best hope for permanently blocking the law from ever taking effect. What also pulled at my heartstrings is what's happening in Montana. LR-131 is a legislative referendum that would, and I'm quoting Abigail Abrams from time.com here, establish that infants, quote, born alive at any stage of development are legal persons 
and would require providers to give them medical care after induced labor, C-sections, and attempted abortions. Go look this up, particularly if you know anyone who votes in Montana. And to make matters worse, medical providers who violate the law would face penalties of up to $50,000 and 20 years in prison. So listen, I would guess there are many people who would choose many different options. But this sounds like it would push providers to intervene even if a family disagrees. What if a parent doesn't want medical intervention? Again, we have laws on the table here that take away choice. And I think that is wrong. I believe taking away a woman's right to choose is always wrong. So read up, get clear on what a yes vote means, what a no vote means, and please exercise your right to vote. Speak up. We need you. All right, before we go, this is the best part of every week. This is our chance to hear from you all, my favorite people from the No One Is Coming To Save Us community. Here's what you had to say this week. Hi, Gloria. I've been listening to your podcast since um, just before I came back to work. I had my first baby in February. Um, I returned to work in June. Um, and <laughs> I didn't think I could do this without crying. But yeah, it's just so, so hard. It feels impossible to do anything well. Um, I love my baby so much. I really like my job and I'd love to not have to pay more than half of my paycheck in order for my baby to have childcare, which was frankly not the nicest one we looked at, but was the cheapest. Um, they love him and I'm glad he's there and I'm pretty sure he's safe and happy most days. Um, but it is really difficult and I just constantly feel like I'm letting everybody down. <laughs> my self, my work, my colleagues, my um, my husband, my baby, and it's really, really hard. So I'm headed into work. I'm trying, trying, trying to get there earlier and earlier each day so that I can have more time with them in the evening. I have a job where I have to work a lot of weekends and evenings, um, and I just am really sad that I barely get to see my baby, and I have to pay so much for that, quote, privilege. Yeah, that quote-unquote privilege. There is a lot to unpack there. I'm pretty sure he's safe. I do not like that we are living in a world where pretty sure is good enough. Not the nicest one we looked at, but the cheapest. Ugh. Okay, let me tell you this. You say you feel like you are letting all of these people in your life down. I remember feeling like that. I remember feeling like I went from giving my all to most things in my life to giving whatever I could muster at the time. A friend told me to make a to-do list that was highly achievable. And I remember asking her, well, what do you put on that list? And she said, brush your teeth. Okay, well, what that really means is self-care. So when I hear your tears, I want to tell you, take care of yourself. Yeah, consider putting brush your teeth on a to-do list with a big checkbox next to it so that each day you can check that off. 
it feels like kind of good. And by the way, when you have a big job and a baby and a husband and all the other things, yes, of course we have to brush our teeth, but checking that box does something, something good. I am so sorry you feel so sad about the situation, especially that you have to, as you wrote, pay so much for that privilege. I'm sad about that too. I'm mad about that too. It does not have to be this way. We can change it. We can demand better because, hello, it is for the benefit of everyone. So hang in there, mama. Snuggle that baby. Smell his little head and nuzzle his little neck and look at him in the eye and take in his first smiles because those are for you. All right, I do want to hear from all of you. In light of the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and the high cost and inaccessibility of childcare in this country, would you want or would you want someone you care about to become pregnant in the next year? Why or why not? Seriously, please keep sending me your voice memos. Building community with each other is one of the most important things we can do. To share your thoughts with me, just pull out your phone, record a voice memo, and email it to me at gloria at lemonadamedia.com. It's as simple as that. I love all of you. Let's do this. I'll see you back here next week. No One Is Coming to Save Us is a Lemonada Media original, presented by and created with Neighborhood Villages. The show is produced by Chrissy Pease, Alex McGowan, and Martine Macias. Our audio engineer is Kat Yor, with additional help from Bobby Woody. Music is by Hannes Brown. Our VP of weekly content is Steve Nelson. Our executive producers are Stephanie Whittles-Wax, Jessica Cordova-Kramer, and me, Gloria Riviera. If you like the show and you believe what we are doing is important, please help others find us by leaving us a rating and writing us a review. Do you have your own experiences and frustrations with the childcare system? Do you have ideas for what we could do to make it better? Join the No One Is Coming to Save Us Facebook group where we continue the conversation together. You can also follow us and other Lemonada Media podcasts at Lemonada Media across all social platforms. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Until then, hang in there. You can do it. Join us on Archetypes, a dynamic podcast hosted by Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, as she digs into the labels that try to hold women back. In each intimate and candid conversation, Megan is joined by guests like Serena Williams, Mariah Carey, Paris Hilton, Issa Rae, and Trevor Noah, as they delve into the roots of countless common descriptors of women, like diva, crazy, dumb blonde, and the B-word, and redefine and reclaim each identity along the way. The complete season of Archetypes is out now on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. In 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Since then, it's been a barrage of bad news. But behind the bleak headlines, there are people working to protect our right to control our future. The Defenders is a new 10-part series about the fight for freedom in a post-Roe America. 
Co-hosted by Samantha B. and me, Gloria Riviera, the show will examine ways people are still accessing care, from crossing state borders to self-managed abortion. You'll hear from activists, providers, and everyday people doing the work to expand reproductive freedom. We're here to tell you, anyone can become a Defender. The Defenders is out now, wherever you get your podcasts.